You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader speaks at the Better World Fund event at the Venice Film Festival focused on consciousness, health, and sustainability. Dr. Nader was honored for his humanitarian work globally in the area of human development and sustainability and was the featured speaker on consciousness, meditation, and sustainability. Dr. Nader spoke on meditation, consciousness, and the brain, which highlighted new scientific insights into consciousness and the crucial role that meditation plays in fostering human creativity. What the brain does, what the nervous system does, is cut off the blood flow to the higher parts of the brain and send it to the lower parts, which we call the limbic system. There is a place called the amygdala, etc. I won't, won't bother you with that. Uh, and that is so that you can actually act immediately. You have to run. It's not the time to think about the movie and music and film and beautiful things. It's the time to run or to fight. And so you cut off the whole blood flow to the upper part of the brain and you are in a fight mode uh, or flight mode, it's runaway. And so the blood flow goes to the muscles, the heart starts beating, the heart breathing, the eyes constrict to look at the object in a clear way. And these are physiological mechanisms. However, what this does is narrows your focus, narrows your attention and then you don't see other possibilities. Now, we are no more in the jungle, but stress is in life, stress is fear, stress is uh, insecurity about the future, fear about the other, the other's beliefs, the other's ways, are they gonna take things from me that I like? And so stress uh, and danger are now maybe just a loud noise in the street or a door that slams or something. It creates stress and then the body starts going into these physiological mechanisms as if it's the tiger pouncing on you. It's not the tiger, it's just a door that was slammed or a car that was rushing around you, but the physiology is still built in a system that does this to you. So what happens is actually you start acting in ways and then interpreting your actions as if you are fully in control of the situation. And unfortunately, there is a huge subliminal, subconscious mechanisms that forces you to act. And you think you are being in control, but you really, in many cases, are very much in a robotic kind of action. It's unfortunate, but it happens when one is under stress or when one is uh, in addiction or is um, controlled by certain factors, hormonally and, and etc. I take a simple example. When I was in medical school, uh, there was a pulmonology teacher, teacher for the lungs, you know, how the lungs work and all of that. And he gave us a long lecture about the bad effects of smoking. 
And so we studied how smoke influences the lungs and how it you know, creates potential for cancer and damage and all of that. And one day I was walking in the street and I see that same professor who's really great guy, great intelligence. I saw him smoking. So I just asked what again, what is making human behavior? It's not just intelligence, it's a number of factors that influence the situation. And that is where consciousness comes into, into the game. Consciousness is awareness of factors. So if you're intelligent, but you have only three variables or four variables in front of you, and you are asked to mix them up and decide about them, then that's what you can do. You might be very intelligent, but you don't know that there are other factors that are influencing the effect and the situation. It's like going to the stock market. You want to invest in the stock market, and all you know is that this company is um, doing well now, it's doing really well, and you think, great, I'm gonna invest in that company. But you don't know that there is a competitor that has started uh, next door, and this company has actually a problem within it that you don't know about, and etc. many other factors that are going to be, the trend is going to change in society, the factors of uh, environment are going to in, uh, come in and uh, they're gonna change the situation of that company. So you might be the most intelligent person, but you have only a few variables that you are looking at. And that is how your nervous system is able to contain how many factors in order to deal with the situation at hand. So even with great intelligence, uh, you might not be able to have the best decision because you don't have enough knowledge. And either you don't have enough knowledge or your brain is stressed and therefore, as we said, is focused on certain factors. I take an example which is really very sad example in, in a sense, but very revealing. In 1972, which is like exactly 50 years ago, there was a flight from JFK, which is John Fitzgerald Kennedy in, in New York, going to Miami to the flight. It was flight Eastern Airlines 401. It is recorded, that's why it has. It has 163 um, people on it, and the crew were very experienced crew. The pilot had 25,000 hours in that particular plane. And the plane was brand new, you know, the type of plane. And he had an engineer and he had a co-pilot uh, with him also. So three, three people sitting on the crew. And it was a very nice flight. They arrived uh, near Miami, to Miami. And so they were about to land. He put the gear down. The gear means the, the uh, wheels. Uh, put them down because the wheels are retractable and the pilots always check if the wheels are down because there are three lights, one for the front wheel and one for the two wheels in the back and one of the lights didn't go on, the green light. So they thought maybe the, the gear didn't go down. So they, they went around and they asked for the tower control to give them a time to go around, so they gave them the time. 
and uh, then there is a, it didn't go down because the, the light wasn't, the bulb didn't come in. So there is a system to cycle the thing manually. So they cycled it massive manually, hopefully that it will go down. It didn't show that it went down, the bulb didn't come in. So they sent the engineer down to the, third, to the in a place in the plane and to check it out. And the chief pilot asked the co-pilot, because they're busy with this, to put the plane on autopilot, which means the plane flies by itself. They were so busy with the little bulb and so tense about it that they forgot that the autopilot suddenly disconnected. And the plane started to lose altitude slowly and then unfortunately crashed and killed most of the people on the plane. So this is a very sad story. Was the pilot stupid? No. It's very intelligent. Was the pilot experienced? Yes, very, very experienced. Did the plane have any problem? No, absolutely not. It's just that they forgot to double check on the autopilot. So intelligence was there, but a small bulb, it turns out when they checked it out, it was just the bulb. The bulb wasn't working and it created this catastrophe. Now the question is, how many times do we crash our own life because of a small bulb that we are focusing on too much? And therefore, this is a question where we have to ask ourselves, is our awareness broad enough? Since that time, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, FAA in the United States, uh, started to do training for what they call broad awareness, broad understanding, or situational awareness. So you have to fly the plane first and then take care of the problem. You have to keep your awareness broad. And that is where consciousness comes in. Awareness, consciousness, what can we hold in our awareness? Depends on how we manage our physiology, our brain. And also this is where transcendental meditation, this technique that allows us to take a distance from the situation, to have a broad perspective on uh, what is happening. Now, Information processing, when we make decisions about things, and I, I won't go into great detail, is there is the conscious information processing, but there is also subconscious information processing. You can see something and you don't think you've seen it, but it has already influenced you. This is what is called implicit perception. You can perceive things without knowing you perceive them. They actually influence you and influence your brain. And there is also Im uh, implicit learning, which you do by, by observing others, by learning from others. Like you learn a language for children, they learn implicitly, they don't think about it, they capture things. You know, you learn mechanical things in a, in a way like that also. Bicycle riding, etc. At the beginning it's conscious and then it becomes subconscious and implicit. Now, the brain is not just one thing that works. It's actually a big machine that has many, many processors in it. There are many, many functions that are happening. And we know this exactly because if there is a damage in one part of the brain, 
you lose maybe some very specific part of your activity. For example, you forgot the name of something or uh, you're not able to give a name to things or you're not able to understand words or you're not able to understand shapes or appreciate shapes. So a very specific aspects of the brain. So the brain is like a big computer to simplify things with many processors in it. And these processors are working each with a certain function. So if your brain is working in a limited way, then you have a limited processing. And if the processors don't talk to each other, then it's not working perfectly. And you might be acting, you know, like a, like a machine in a sense, even though you have a part of the brain that tells you, oh, I understand what I'm doing, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm deciding, I'm the master of my destiny and all of that, but you're not. Now, how does this relate to sustainability? It relates very deeply because all these big, great leaders that we have in the world that make decisions about policies, etc., they're not bad people. They're not poor intention people, although some can be, I, I don't want to get into that part, but they act based on factors that influence them. And these factors are due to individual consciousness and collective consciousness of the nation, which, you know, through the media, through different aspects, influence the behavior and the person then is pre-programmed to make decisions. Because what we are talking about today is the most natural thing. Don't we want our planet to survive? Don't we want to give to our next generation something better than we have? Don't we want to protect ourselves? Don't we want to love each other? Don't we want to have peace, etc., etc.? As it was mentioned, do we have resources? Yes, the resources are there. The planet is full of resources. Everybody can be happy. Everybody can have food to eat. Everybody can have schooling. When you look at it from the simple analysis and adding numbers, you find that it's so obvious. The question is, why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing it? And that is because we are pre-programmed. And the factors come, all my economy, all my strengths, all my protection against the other is going to take this from me. She's going to do this to me. I'm going to be this. And it's all a question of limited awareness, short-sightedness, and incomplete understanding of the potential. This is where you have some parts of the brain that are working, but not all the parts are talking to each other. And that's a very physiological also, it's in the physiology. Now, I won't go through this in detail, but what it takes to have effectiveness and purposefulness, we can talk about it if you're interested during the question session, because I like to interact with you if possible, if the time allows. But there are a number of factors, cognitive capacity, emotional capacity, interpersonal <laughs> skills, the ability to deal with each other, and all of these, are factors and parts of our brain, the way our brain works. Now what we know, and I mentioned briefly, that stress and fatigue, they compromise brain function, they compromise physical health, psychological health and cognition, and therefore they compromise the focus, 
behavior, relationships, teamwork, and performance. Now, this is a functional magnetic resonance imaging, functional MRI of the brain. It's seen from the side, the nose is on this left side, on this one in the left picture, and the back of the brain is on the other. The red shows when there is increased blood flow, and the blue is the area where there is uh, less blood flow during that image, because this was taken in somebody who practices transcendental meditation. And that's a typical function. What we see here is that the parts that are related to stress are calmed down, and the parts that are related to imagination, to foreseeing the future, are activated. This front part of the brain is called the CEO of the brain, because this is where you anticipate of, for the future, you think of things that are going to happen, you analyze the past, you think of the present, and you project yourself to the future. And therefore, this is the area that during transcendental meditation, we can see, is very much improved, which says that this person is under very low stress, and therefore now they can think of beautiful things, of creative things, rather than they think they are in the jungle and the tiger is going to jump on them, and therefore we don't need to get this area now activated. We can shut it down and let's think about how to fight and run. So, awareness, again, we can talk about it in greater detail. There is, uh, in science, we have this graph with different types of levels of consciousness. So it's not just we are conscious or not conscious. We know we have sleep consciousness, we have dream consciousness, we have consciousness of vegetative states, sleepwalkers, loss of recall, rapid eye movement, etc. We don't bother you with this very much. But there is the awareness of the environment and the level of arousal. So these are two factors. And they are very real. How much you're aware of the environment, how much you're aware of yourself, depends on your state of consciousness, which can be analyzed with electroencephalographic changes and physiological changes. The greater the awareness, the higher is the potential for positive feeling and for purposeful decision-making. We know this. And the narrower the awareness, the smaller will be the range and degree of freedom. There have been studies on brain coherence, which means we said the brain has many processors, front, back, right, left, etc. Now, if these processors work together, like you have a computer and you say, oh, I bought a computer which has 10 processors. It works really fast and can analyze the situation instantly, whereas this computer with only one processor that is slow, will analyze slowly and will not give me the results. The more we have fast processing and the more we have ability to process information, the faster is our decision-making and the clearer is the situation. Now, when the brain coherence that has been studied in a certain range of frequency, alpha wave, between front and back, right and left, it shows that there are all these benefits that come with it. Sociomoral reflection, moral reasoning is better, intelligence also is better, academic performance, and conscious orientation, neurological efficiency, creativity, they all improve. And now comes the technique 
uh, that we are talking about, a mental technique, a simple, easy mental technique that can be practiced morning and evening for 20 minutes, that actually has shown to improve all of these factors in the brain. Now, how does this technique work? You sit easily in a chair, you close the eyes, and you learn a process with a sound that has no meaning. It's not a sound that you have to listen to. It's just something you repeat in a special way. It's called mantra. Mantra means a sound without a meaning. And uh, you have to learn how to do it also. It's not just repeating. And what it does is allow the, the mind to dive deeper from the conscious active mind, and this is shown here like an ocean with waves on the surface and more and more quiet in the bottom. And these bubbles are like thoughts, the thoughts that come from somewhere inside us and that arise and we're aware of them on the surface level of the mind. Now, this bottom level here is the pure consciousness, where consciousness is only aware of itself. There is no uh, aspect of no thought, no, no mantra, no nothing. It's just pure consciousness. And that is something we've never experienced because whenever we are usually conscious, we're conscious of something. We're conscious of a thought, we're conscious of a feeling, we're conscious of a memory, of a perception, of a light, of a sound, whatever. Now imagine that you can be conscious without having anything in your consciousness. So you are conscious of yourself, of your just pure being. And that is what we call pure consciousness. And we say that this is the source of all the thoughts, the creative thoughts, that we become aware of only on the surface. Now, transcending, this is what is called transcendental meditation, is the ability to go from the surface to the pure consciousness, to dive within ourselves, and that is the technique of transcendental, because to transcend means to go beyond. It's to go beyond the surface, which means you are taking a step back. So when you are in stress situation, as we said, your brain focuses on small things and you are in a fight or flight mode. When you are more relaxed, there is more ability of thinking in a broad way, in a broad comprehension. If you are extremely relaxed, very relaxed, it's like taking the distance away from the hustle and bustle and fears and anxieties. And here you are just opening your brain to its full possibilities. Because you're not handling specifics, you are going to the general, to the holistic, to the inner feeling. And that is physiologically actually what happens as the brain becomes very highly coherent between front and back, right and left, and there is that feeling of infinity, that feeling of peace, of harmony, of oneness that you hear about in spiritual experiences of enlightenment, of samadhi, of a sense of nirvana, whatever you want to call it. And that is the field of simple transcendence, which means going beyond. And that happens easily and systematically through transcendental meditation. Now, what I'm saying, is corroborated by scientific finding that shows, for example, uh, if you touch somebody's finger or something like that, on the left side, this is the brain with analysis of the response of the brain. On the left side, you see before transcendental meditation, it is 
localized. It is, uh, the response is localized in this blue area that you see. And with transcendental meditation, you can find that the brain is analyzing it with a much broader, you know, blue that, that spreads around, which means more of the processors of the brain are being involved in analyzing the situation. And as we said, if you have more processing power, then you analyze the situation in a more efficient way and faster, and therefore you come to the right conclusion in a fast way. I talked about this as the prefrontal cortex as a key to success, and we have seen that in transcendental meditation, the front part of the brain gets activated, and there are many research studies that compare different techniques, uh, focused attention, open monitoring, and automatic self-transcending, which is transcendental meditation, to show that there are differences between the different techniques. It's like you can be mindful, of course, of something, mindful of your breathing, mindful of your thoughts, but that's kind of a little bit of a focused attention. Or if you can call it more of the techniques of mindfulness are in the open monitoring side, which means you're sitting there and you're experiencing whatever you're going through without judgment, without uh, emotional involvement. And this can be also very helpful, but they are not transcending. They are not going beyond, which actually shows uh, that automatic self-transcending, which is transcendental meditation, shows the highest level of coherence in the brain. So the changes are physiological, and they have been shown comparing many, many studies to lead to higher creativity, practical intelligence, field independence, which means your ability to see in a broad way, even though you can focus on specific aspects and fluid intelligence. So that is what is very interesting is that it also influences the physiology because when the mind settles down during transcendental meditation, the body settles down very, very deeply and as it becomes so settled and calm, then it can heal itself. So, you know, and if you, you see a doctor and you have a problem, he doesn't tell you, oh, you're sick, you should go and run. They tell you, no, you should rest. The rest is very important to give a chance for the body to heal itself. And rest gives a good healing. Transcendental meditation gives such a deep rest with a deep quality of rest because you have restful alertness at the same time you are awake, that it not only removes the deep-rooted fatigue, but the deep-rooted stresses and strains that we usually accumulate through our life, and they remain with us even in our subconscious. So there are specific changes. We don't need to go this, but overall it is, it is a real thing. It's not a philosophy, uh, not an idea that is a very nice idea. It produces effects, and there are 700 scientific research studies that show improvements in this particular study. There is a reduction in heart rate and stroke and death. And those who practice transcendental meditation, we can see those who practice regularly, 66% reduction. And this was a longitudinal study that was done over many, many years. And therefore, the effect on, on longevity is really there, and the effect on many, many other aspects, you know, of disease, tumors, heart problems, nervous system problems, skin problems are, are there. So 
I'd like to stop here because it's good to have some exchange and questions. Uh, there is more that we can discuss, of course, about the logic of it. How does it work? Why does it work like that? Does it correspond to what we know about reality from physics, etc., from biology, from the laws of nature? And this is part of the knowledge of what is ultimate reality. And again, I take the position that ultimate reality is consciousness. I defend this in uh, my book that will be offered to you, those who are here, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. It's a nice read, but you have to read it a few times, so don't get discouraged if some chapters are a little bit requiring attention. Now, this is very important for sustainability because this is what is going to make awareness broad, therefore more factors be taken into consideration, therefore greater intelligence, and therefore greater understanding. So what we need is people to see the whole picture and not act on a short term, but able to see the long-term benefits, the long-term benefits for themselves, for their children, their society, their nations, and the whole world. So it requires we open awareness, we open consciousness, we raise individual and social consciousness. And there are amazing studies that support the paradigm that consciousness is all there is, and that is how this influences the behavior in society. And when a number of people practice these techniques together, or even a certain percentage in society, we have actually seen a decrease in crime decrease in accidents of the road, and improvement in many social indicators. And that is because consciousness is primary, not the physical is primary. If we keep staying with the physical as primary, we're going to continue thinking that I have to gather more, I have to fight more, I have to own more, because that is not really the, the true reality of life as consciousness. What we want to do is be more, expand ourselves, expand our consciousness. And when we are more, we will include in our concept of ourselves, not just that individual sitting in the skin that we have, but also our neighbor or our friend. And when we are more, it's our society. And when it's more, it's our nation. And we have this intuition in ourselves. And when we are really more, then we are also our environment, we are also our world, we are our earth, we are our resources, they are us. It's not that we are independent from that. And actually, when you look at it, even from a physics perspective and the latest physical discoveries in physics, you find that is ultimately everything is coming from one unified field of the laws of nature, and we are all just expressions of that oneness, and that is raising consciousness, raising consciousness to know we are one with everything, and then we will treat the other like we treat ourselves in a natural way, because that's us. We are that. Now we sit separately in separate chairs, but the true ultimate reality, we are just one appearing as many. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. It's, uh, it's very, very interesting, of course, because you give so much details. 
And I would love if you can share a few questions from the audience with Dr. Nader. If you, okay, yeah. I'll be my joy. Yeah, so is there any question? You have a question here? I have uh, questions. One about instincts. Where do you, because we spoke about the jungle, we spoke about this um, me mechanism, uh, um, and where does the instinct uh, come then? And then the other thing, we spoke about realities, and we have immersive realities also. So how does the brain work in a VR experience? First, compassion emerges uh, naturally. I mean, it could be a compassion, teaching compassion, which is a great thing because that is intellectual understanding and application of the feel, feel like the other, you know, as we heard, you know, you divide your sandwich in three and then keep one for the other. This is wonderful. The thing is you have to do it because when you're hungry, you just eat the whole thing and maybe buy a second sandwich and then you will think of the other later. So the question is how to develop natural compassion. And natural compassion comes not from only intellectual understanding, but from direct experience of the inner self and awareness of the oneness from within ourselves. And then compassion becomes a natural thing, not a contrived something that you have to actually feel you're doing sacrifice to do it, but it becomes a joy because yeah. you see and you know that the other is also yourself and you're happy that they are like this. So, you know, if there is a food on the plate and the mother is looking there and the kid wants to eat it and the mother is also hungry, then she will feel, okay, you get it. And you look at the child eating this food and you will feel so happy yourself because you have this connection of that individual as being also yourself. And this is the instinct, the instinct of motherhood. That instinct comes from nature, from biology. And it, it can expand not only to mothers, but also to fathers and friends and, and relatives and feeling. It can expand when the consciousness goes deep into itself then the instincts bring out, that come out, are the real natural instincts. Now, humans have developed their ability to see more, so we cannot compare it to animal instinct because that is a lower level of life, and we have a higher level of life and a higher level of ability, so we have a higher responsibility and a higher freedom. And in this, is the possibility either to make it or break it. We can make things worse. Yes, we can, because we have higher consciousness, we have higher choice, and uh, we have higher freedom. And it is up to us to raise the consciousness to the point where it becomes naturally inclusive and lead to a better decision for ourselves and others. Uh, VR. Yeah, VR is, is you know, um, one of the great philosophers of uh, consciousness and writers. Uh, Chalmers uh, wrote a nice book recently, Reality Plus, he calls it. And he says that even VR is kind of a reality because you live in it. And why is this? And my understanding, my perspective, my explanation is that whatever we expose ourselves to, influences us and becomes part of ourselves. 
And so you see a new beautiful flower, you have a reaction. You see something that is not pleasant, your body has an impression, and that impression stays with you. So we grow with these impressions one after the other. So the VR, you can say, is an alternate imaginary reality, but it becomes so real that the experience will have an impact on you as if it is real. And so um, that's why it's actually part of reality in a sense. And when you look deeper, what we see as reality, even in the waking state, is only what we see as reality, which means it's based on our nervous system. Uh, some people can see red, some people don't see red because they are colorblind. They see gray or they don't see green or something like that. And, and like this, what we see is based on our nervous system and how it works. When you are in a dream, you think the tiger is real and it's going to jump on you and kill you if you're dreaming of a tiger. I mean, I don't know how many would dream of a tiger nowadays, probably of a car crash or falling from a hill or something like that. So the parachute, if you have a parachute next to you and you're sleeping and you dream of falling, if you don't have a parachute in the dream state, the parachute that is sitting next to you is not going to help you. So the parachute of the dream state is required for you not to break yourself when you are flying. And so this is what reality is real, you know. Uh, this is a whole subject of philosophy and discussion. And I go through this in my book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, because it shows that also we could be now dreaming, who knows? <laughs> it's a shared dream. It's a shared, uh, some philosophers call it shared hallucination. And to some extent, believe it or not, it's true. <laughs> Until you realize you are one with everything, you are just in a dream state, in a sense. But this is taking us too far. Let's stay <laughs> the foot on the earth. <laughs> all this is real, and it's real at its own level, that's all. Sure. Um, this Exactly, the magic of cinema, the magic of film, the ability to communicate through art, which is a fabulous way, it touches more people than science, you know? We pay more for, you know, the artists are much wealthier than scientists, I can tell you. And the reason is because people are touched by it, are transformed by it, are influenced by it. Uh, you know, as Nadine Dabeki says, you know, you speak to people very deeply, even if you don't you know you'll never meet them, but you speak to so many people through films, through art. Thank you. So first of all, I wish to deeply thank you for your presentation, so brilliant and so profound. So my question is about consciousness. Do you think that consciousness uh, can be considered a kind of a common platform a kind of a unifying value that could link together all the different fields of science. I'm thinking about, about medicine and uh, biology, and uh, that could also link together science with uh, religions and philosophy. I'm asking that because uh, I think that consciousness uh, could be um, a new, a new point of view uh, 
from where we could really start thinking of new solutions for all the problems we are facing now in the world in order to really create a better world for our children. So, thank you. I think it's beautifully said, you know, I don't know if I need to comment more on that. Yes, I do. It's absolutely true. If you go to physics, for example, because we're saying consciousness, consciousness is something non-material, non-tangible, you don't smell it, you don't touch it, you just experience it, and is it real? Uh, and what is real and is the physical real? So when you look into the most physically real, you can see, you know, uh, we discussed this briefly. This is a human being on the top here. I don't know if you see the pointer. And then we dissect, we're trying to say, what are things made of, you know, physics? And this has been the question since time immemorial. What are things made of? And then the Greeks said, okay, you divide things into pieces and then you keep dividing, keep dividing, and then at one point you reach a point where you cannot divide things anymore. So we reach to an indivisible point, and that's, they called it the atom. Atom means non-divisible, which means that's the origin of everything, some little piece of something. So everything is, according to that, made of atoms. Now, what are atoms made of? At that time, they don't have the technology to find out, but now we do. And so when you look into atoms, you find they're made out of electrons and nucleus, and then in the nucleus there are particles, and protons and neutrons. And so what are these made of? They looked into that and it took a long time, and they have, you know, colliders and CERN and Switzerland and everywhere. They collide things together and they found that these particles are actually fields, electromagnetic field and etc. which means something that is not localized like we used to think. It's just a field and it has a fluctuation. It fluctuates. And when it fluctuates, it gives the impression of being a particle. And that's why we said reality is different, you know, depending on where you look at it. And that's how we, we, we go through this from physics and, and we see there is the classical physics, which is the surface value. Everything is made of these atoms, like billiard balls, and they are localized in time and space. But then when you reach deeper, you reach quantum mechanics. It's not the time to discuss advanced physics, just to know that you reach a place where there are fields, and deeper than that are the quantum field theory, which actually says that everything is a field and everything comes from a fluctuation of different, different fields. Now, what are these fields? It used to be like the field of electricity, the field of magnetism, the field of capillary force, the field of whatever. And they started to say, no, let's look deeper. And they found that these fields are actually unified. So electromagnetism, became a unified aspect of electricity and magnetism. They're not two different things. They are the same thing appearing differently. Sometimes appearing magnetism if you go around, sometimes appearing electricity if you're going straight in a line. So we don't need to get into this advanced physics. Just to know that as scientists kept looking deeper into what nature is, what the physical world is, they found more and more unified levels until they reach the unified field theory, 
which actually tells us that everything, absolutely everything, comes from one field, which is called the unified field of all the laws of nature, and that field appears as the other fields, and then appears as magnetism, chemistry, biobiology, and atoms and molecules and cells. So truly, we are all that field, ultimately. We are that. This is physics. Now, you ask the physicist, what is that field? And it starts becoming a mathematical thing, which is not actually really physical. So the only jump we want to make is that to say, well, that field is a field of consciousness. That field is a field of consciousness. Now the question becomes, how consciousness, which is something we don't taste, we don't touch, we just experience, because we know without consciousness, we can know, not know anything, we cannot love, we cannot experience, we cannot be talking. You imagine if you are all in coma today, what would be the meeting? We can't even come to the meeting. We don't know anything, we can't experience anything. So consciousness is our life. Consciousness is what allows us to know, what allows us to experience, what allows us to create, what allows us to love and to feel, etc. And that consciousness, how does it appear as matter? This is the big question in philosophy and science. If it is consciousness that is primary, how is it that it appears or it is matter? Because matter is also real. We, we deal with matter all the time, the physical reality. That's what I deal with in the book. <laughs> How consciousness appears as matter. And the solutions, as you know, to continue, if reality is that consciousness is all there is, then the solution is to work from consciousness, not to work from something that is not the ultimate reality, from an illusion of reality. One thing that is very important to me is that you come from a country which had civil war. How did it affect you in the consciousness? How you affect other people in the civil war? You know, we have been living in New York on, on January 6th. We're still alive on that. And in, on the 25th of September in Italy, we have a political action which might change our life. So how we can improve the people who do not like us, and they're going to make laws, they're going to deprive our existence. Beautiful. Everything we expose ourselves to affect us, so I cannot say it did not affect me. Of course it did, certainly, very deeply. And maybe it's one of the reasons that pushed me subconsciously or at some level to actually search for answers search for answers on a biological level, on the psychiatric level, on the mental level, on the neurological level, and on that level of experience, of consciousness. And I got satisfied with that answer. So that's how maybe, as, as Dr. Song said, you know, sometimes something bad happens and you think it's terrible, and it might be good for you on a personal level, but it could be terrible, of course, on another level also. It affected me like this, and now I feel we have the solution. I really feel we have the solution, not only on the level of feeling, but on the level of experience, of research, that we have created groups that practice this program together, and we have seen 
scientifically with great significance, very careful studies and analysis done proactively, which means we said we will have the result and we studied it and followed it. And it did happen that we can change crime rate, we can change conflict, we can change problems in society from the level of consciousness. And so this has been my proposal. We have talked to many people in, in Lebanon and many other places in the world where there is conflict and offered them this solution. But again, it's your action and decision-making depends on your awareness on the factors that influence you. And therefore, they're not able to take the solution, even though the cost of it is very, very small compared to the benefit. Not even, you know, one plane flying, you know, and then crashing somewhere, you know, the price of that is enough to create a group and should see the difference. So that's why we are here. That's why we thank, again, I'd like to thank the organizers, the Better World Fund, and Manuel's great generosity of heart and spiritual need to make a difference, which I know he believes in it very deep in his heart. It's not just to create a time, it's work for him. He often tells me, I'd like to go and sit in the Himalaya or somewhere. <laughs> but he keeps being committed. So thank you for, for inviting us. It's a joy. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.